So depending who you are, and this will say a lot about you, more so than about any, anyone else or any of the characters, de- depending who you are, you'll come to decision who, whom you are going to blame as the person who has blame in this week's Parsha, which means, you know, who do you want to start with? You want, uh, Chazal like to blame Esav, which we didn't spend a lot of time with today, and in order to get there, they end up blaming Esav for every type of sin imaginable, and some even that fortunately even you guys can't imagine. I mean, all, all, all kinds of things they, they accuse him of. And, and, and that itself, to a certain extent, is surprising because you don't see it. And as we all know, I'm not saying anything that we don't know, I think, as we all know that sometimes in Chazal, and even in the Navi, you have to be careful when you're talking about Esau, because Esau, of course, becomes Edom, and Edom, of course, becomes becomes Rome, and Rome becomes Christianity. So therefore, before you knew it, suddenly, you know, Esau, and poor Esau, the only thing he ever asked for was a bowl of chillant, which all of us understand quite quite well, and the next thing you know, he's just, he's destroying the second Beit HaMikdash. But, and in Chazal's mind, there is that perfect path that leads from one to the other, and it could be that in our minds, that path is not as perfect as, as it is in Chazal. And again, I'm, I'm not judging that at all, because there is the singular biblical character, Esau, who is a brother of Yaakov and a son of Yitzchak and Rivka, and on the other hand, you have this midrashic persona, but I'm going to say it again, the midrashic persona, to a certain extent, is a reflection of not only the biblical individual, but it's also of what Chazal understand thematically ends up being the result of Esau. As I said, that becomes Rome and, and, uh, and Christianity and uh, Crusades and, and so on and, and so forth. And you'll find that theme in various piyutim and keynote and so on and so forth. And, this, and, and that is Esau. But again, that, that, that's very interesting. And to what extent any of the, that which emerges reflects or tells us about the biblical of that itself is somewhat of a challenge, but of course, you know that that happens a lot, especially uh, when people are younger and you have very um, dedicated mechanchim who don't always know how to distinguish between the midrashim versus the, the biblical character, and then suddenly you have this this character who is guilty of every sin imaginable. So, so I'll say it again, so there needs to be a little bit of care as far as that goes. On the other hand, you know, you can blame Yaakov, and that also takes a certain type of perspective today, that you blame Yaakov, look at Yaakov, Yaakov is the guilty person in this parsha. Yaakov, uh, quote-unquote, Jews him out of his birthright, Yaakov goes and uh, dresses up as him, and, and Yaakov, therefore, becomes the terrible protagonist. Of course, there is another side to, to all of that, and that is, uh, and that's Rivka, who Rivka helps Yaakov uh, do what he does, and not only that, the Targum has a very interesting turn of phrase, and this is in Perakov Zayin, where it talks about yeah, when she tells him to dress up, and there the Targum says, she tells him, because I heard, and she goes back to Nivoah. She said, I heard, I, I have a Nivoah that that's supposed to do, which is either a separate Nivoah, or her understanding of that first Nivoah, which she had all those years ago, which then, of course, leads us to another place. So why is there this wonderful dysfunctional family? So let's blame God. You know, why, why are we avoiding God in all this? God goes and tells her inside information, literally inside information, in terms of how her children are going to 
work out. And I know that some of you won't read a book until you read the end of the book first to decide if you want to have any emotional uh, investment in this book. But on the other hand, would you want the same knowledge and foreknowledge in terms of uh, one's children to also know, okay, how's the story going to, which one should I invest in? Which is the one which is uh, which is worthwhile, and that's and that is an unbelievable blessing and curse at, at one time, which therefore colors completely and colors the relationship that Rivka will end up having both with Yaakov and with uh, Esav, and and of course if we're going to blame everybody else. You know how can we avoid blaming Yitzchak? Yitzchak should get some blame along the way, and uh, the one who did that best was Rav Hirsch, who I'm completely convinced also had a bad day. When he was, uh, when he gave, and people love it. People just absolutely love his interpretation. Uh, the Rav Hirsch uh, says that Yitzchak and Rivka were both guilty. And they're guilty because they gave, they, they sent Yaakov and Esav to the same yeshiva. So you have to realize that that's a little funny. But uh, see, what, what Rav Hirsch said is absolutely brilliant in terms of 19th century Europe, but it's not brilliant. Sorry in terms of the Chumash itself. And my assumption is he was giving a drasha and, uh, and people believe him. And uh, whoever believes a rabbi giving a drasha, I mean, you... Uh, I won't say who. I know one rabbi who was wildly successful, and part of his success were all the people who were members of the Kiddush Club right before he uh, would speak. They all had a l'chaim or two or three. And, and everything he said was brilliant afterwards. <laughs> which may, may be a good idea for young rabbis. Don't fight against the Kiddush Club. Encourage it completely. <laughs> You'll sound smarter. <laughs> That's why you're doing the Haftarah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But no, what Hirsch says is that, uh, is that by, by treating both of these children in the exact same way, the, they ended up creating this. And if you read Rav Hirsch as he morphs into 21st century, you can Google and you'll find somebody who's written an article recently, on, or multiple people, on that, that, that Asaph had ADHD. And you know that Rav Hirsch didn't actually say that. And uh, he had ADHD, and therefore they try to force him to, you know... In, in, Right, so I'm saying you'll you'll somebody's going to get up. Some some of you are going to hear somebody get up and say this, and it's a very nice message, but it's just not true in terms of the parsha. And I I don't have the time now to go into all the reasons it's it's not true. But I but I think actually if one looks at it, that Yitzchak was actually a wonderful parent. And I'll I'll say very very quickly when it says in the pasuk that Rivka loves Yaakov, but it says but but Yitzchak loves Esav kitzayid befiv. That itself tells you that he loves him because that's what he's good at. Is that I mean that's a wonderful parent that Yitzchak may not necessarily identify. But I'm, I'm gonna I want to come back to this very soon. And then Yitzchak does the most brilliant parenting move imaginable, maybe one of the best ones in all of uh, Chumash, when he tells him, "Go bring me food." And by doing that, he turns Esav's hunting. You know, there's a famous truth of the No to Behuda. That's the other thing that people will quote this week. The No to Behuda. Somebody asked him if you're allowed to go hunting as for sport. And uh, he says, after going through all the reasons why it may not really be a problem, Tsar Balechaim is not a problem, and this isn't a problem, which is a very surprising truth for everybody who thinks that Judaism is, uh, is woke, in the sense that, uh, that, that, of course, you know, you can't go kill animals and so on. And, and, and he ends up explaining why you really can, but at the end of the truth, he says, but the hunters we find in Chomish are, are, are Nimrod and, and Esav, and, and that itself is very important and very interesting. And there is a subtext of that on a midrashic level that uh, that Esav is a very Nimrod type. 
character. And he goes, why would we want to be like these kinds of people? Which is actually an educational value statement much more than it is a halachic statement. Which means the no de Behuda ultimately... Can you close the door, please? The no de Behuda ultimately can't argue on halachic grounds, so he ends up arguing on what he perceives to be moral grounds, that this is, a, this is not the kind of behavior that we, that we like and we, and we approve. But I want to go back to what Yitzchak did. Yitzchak, who doesn't know about the no de Behuda's tshuva, what does he do? He tells Esau, go and hunt and bring me food from the hunt and I'll give you a bracha. Essentially, you know, all this whole rumor that Esau kept of keep it of aim. Well, why did he keep it of aim? Because his father asked him to do that which he wanted to do. Again, just think about that for a second. Certain people may have a hard time keeping it of aim. Why? Because it could be the parents are asking them to do something that the kid can't do or doesn't want to do, doesn't have the aptitude, the interest of doing but what does Yitzchak do? He goes and asks him to do that which he wants to do, and he says, bring me food, I'm going to give you a bracha. So by doing that, he turns the hunting into a mitzvah. You know, unlike the Nod B'yudah, oh, that's Nimrod behavior, no. Yitzchak turns Esav's hunting into a mitzvah, keep it of, and, uh, and it, it's a mitzvah now. And now he can give him a bracha for it, which means something divine can emerge from this. So if you think about this, and now you go back to Rav Hirsch, oh, we treated both of them exactly the same way. What are you talking about? I think you'd be very hard-pressed to find anybody who treated their kids as differently, unless you want to look at Yaakov in terms of Yosef, but, he, but he, by treating kids in terms of their strengths, in terms of their abilities. So uh, as much as people are going to give Divrei Torah and attack Yitzchak or Andrifka, perhaps, for how they raise their kids... Uh, uh, I, I think it's it's an interesting message. Look, what, what really is the problem, which we're certainly not going to speak about, and that is schools are terrible places for students. I don't know if they're good for teachers, but they're not good for... Schools are terrible places. The reason it's terrible places is that instead of teaching an individual in terms of their needs, what you're going to do is you're going to make a mess. And within that mess certain kids will actually be exactly the level that you're trying to teach, but the vast majority won't. They'll be higher, they'll be lower, they'll be, they think differently, they approach differently, they ask differently, and what you're doing is you're making something which is mass-produced. So in a generation, which is really when we're first speaking, when you're making something mass-produced, so then you, you're saying there's a problem with this. Schools are great, but you, and, and again, remember, the German-Jewish community was way, way ahead of Eastern Europe in terms of general education, and even more so in terms of women's education. Sarah Schneer's big revolution was that she copied the German approach that was already taking place beforehand, and she brings it over to Eastern Europe. So, uh, and that's because she had contact with some people who were involved with uh, Rav Hirsch's general community, and she was uh, impacted and, and impressed by this. So, you know, it's very interesting to write history. Oh, she was the founder of women's education. Yeah, after it was already founded in different places. But uh, enough, en- enough of that. So that, again, you can choose who you want to attack. And as I said, it says far more about you than it does about the biblical characters. You want to attack Yitzchak, okay. You want to attack Rivka, okay. You want to, you want to attack uh, Yaakov, okay. You want to attack Esav, okay. You want to blame Akadosh Baruch Hu for everything over here. That's also okay. But as I said, it doesn't say that much about them. It says far mo- more about you in terms of who you think is the, is the problem over here. All that made some sense on some level. And and now, and now you no longer miss me, right? <laughs> but I want I want to do something with Ace of today, where I, I want to try to get an evaluation much more grounded in terms of the psukim themselves, 
which is not going to prevent me from from eventually going much more into a midrashic approach, but I first want to ground it, as I said. I, I think that we need the the starting point to know what does it say, what doesn't it say. So when we, you know, just, so for example, when we're told that Asaph comes in from the field and he's tired, so there we're going to be told, oh, of course he's tired because he raped and he murdered and he pillaged and, uh, you know, that's ti- that that's that, that, yeah, that's tiring stuff. So therefore, of, of course he's tired when he comes in, but is, is that a little bit unfair? And by the way, there's another Midrash, which actually to me rings a lot truer, even though, again, we, when I say truer, don't, don't get upset with me. But it, it's, it really takes us in a completely different place. And this is also based upon some information that you know, which may or may not be relevant. We're told Yitzchak dies at the age of 180. And we're told that Avram dies at the age of 70, 175. So the reality is, it's not really a fair question to ask, well, why does Avram die at 175? You all realize that's not really a fair question. You can ask the question, but it's not a fair question. And it's actually the kind of question that you're only going to ask is if you have a good answer to it. So the, so the answer which is given is that Avram dies five years earlier than he should have died because... Because he, God wanted to spare him from seeing Esav going quote unquote off the derech, so that actually helps us a lot in terms of a couple of things. One, it helps us in terms of some of the chronology. Yitzchak gets married at forty. That we're told clearly in this week's parsha. Yitzchak doesn't have a child or children till he's sixty. Now it's also interesting. Somebody mentioned to me this week that he saw a commentary who I don't recall who saying that, oh, because Avram is going to die early, so it was that, that's why there was infertility for 20 years, to push off Avram's death as much as possible, because if, if, they, if they have a kid right away, then Avram's going to die 25 years earlier, not just five years earlier. So therefore, uh, therefore it, gets, uh, it gets pushed. But by the way, you realize, now you took an idea which really isn't a question, and you liked the question so much, now you turned it into, now you turned it into theology. That God, that God rejects Yitzchak's prayers because uh, he doesn't want to offer him to die. So, uh, ah, so, so according to the Midrash then, again, the math all over here is very simple because Yitzchak is, Yitzchak is born when Avraham is 100. So therefore, if Yitzchak has a ch- child at 60, Avraham is 160. And if Avram dies at 175, that means you're 15 more years. So then you have this theory of conservation of, uh, of beans, because the beans are round and sometimes they're used for sudas havra. When somebody passes away, you would serve eggs or something round. So, ah, why is Yaakov making beans? It's because he's making a sudas havra because, because Avram just died. So again, that, that's, that all makes everything very tight and everything fits in. But then you also have this other point. When Esau comes in from the field, he says something where it's one of these things that actually look at what it says versus what you remember. You remember he comes in and he says, I'm, uh, you know, I want food, I'm hungry, but he never said he's hungry. So look at Pasuk Kavtet. And that's what I said before. Oh, why is he tired? Because of all the crime he was doing. And, and then again, Esav says, And it shouldn't have said, It should have said, Right? Why? Why? Because I'm tired. So, 
here I'm going to take the Avram death scene and take it to a different place. Tiredness is sometimes connected to depression. A person who's really depressed can't get out of bed. They can't get out of bed, they can't function. And over here when Esav is saying that I'm tired, I would sooner read that in terms of, instead of him raping and pillaging and killing and so on and so forth, yes, it is about death. But it's about the death of Avraham. And essentially he has a breakdown. His breakdown is the greatest man who's ever lived, Avram Avinu, dies like everybody else dies. And there's a Medrash that says this. Avram dies and Nimrod dies. But then it comes to, oh, he just killed Nimrod that day. He killed Nimrod and Nimrod dies and Avram dies. Everybody dies. Okay, yeah, everybody dies. But, 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 but the first time that he meets death of a loved one, a grandparent, he is suddenly uh, thrust into this depression and saying, you know, well, what purpose is there in life? What does any mean? What difference does it make what I do? And so on, which is interesting because we just now flipped it around. Avram dies in order that he shouldn't see Esav go off the way that he goes, and now you realize that you have a midrashic explanation that Esav goes the way that he goes because Avram died. So obviously you had a different solution to this, and that is keep Avram alive a lot longer, and Esav never goes off the derech, and then we have a different ending to say for Bereshit. And for that matter, for all of Navi and all of history, and and so and and so on and so forth. But again, I just want you to note how easy that was just to turn this around a little bit. But I do, I do want to note something else, and I'm going to say this now, and then we're going to see how many examples there are. And the first example, what I'm going to say now, is you can accuse me of being unfair until you see the rest of them, and and this is a little unfair. And I'll I'll also point another thing out that that um. You don't know, even though I just now argued why they were 15 years old, but you don't know that. It doesn't, doesn't say how old they are at all. They could have been 15, they could have been 30. You have, you have no idea. How is this introduced? It says, And they grew up. So how old are they right now? I don't know how old they are. But as I said, where, where we have that midrashic perspective, so then they are both at the age of 15 right now, but of course... Either they are or they aren't. So just pause that for a moment. But one of the things that Asaph says, which is really quite strange, which may go back to Avram's death, but may also go someplace else. So he comes in and says, I'm exhausted. Can I have some of the red stuff? And also, he says, I can't crush Mo Edom, even though when he was born already, there is this sense that he's going to be Edom. Sell me your rights as firstborn. And that's also strange, and we don't know what exactly Yaakov's motivation is, and we're not that concerned right now to go into that. I'm going to die. What do I need the Bechorah? So if I read this back, or Avram dies, I'm going to die, everybody's going to die, why would a 15-year-old be talking about death? Again, the depression and so on. So, so there, there is something over here that needs to be noted, but... I told you, there's something else that, that I want you to see. And this is one of these things that sometimes we don't realize it until it hits us in the face, and that is that sometimes children end up talking just like their parents talk. And there's a... Uh, the, I don't know what f- term to use it. Somebody will give me a good term at some point. But... Not really. There, there is some kind of behavior also, which is a mirroring behavior... But that, I think, is a little bit more um, more cynical and more uh, manipulative. Excuse me? Parroting. Parroting. Pa- yeah, I don't know if you had it with a D or with a T. Pa- <laughs> okay, so, so s- sometimes 
children's mode of speak and behavior is, is very much coming from the parents and and it's not and we don't realize our own faults until we hear somebody else saying the same kind of thing and say, hold it, where did that come from? Which, of course, you don't want the answer to it. But we're, we're going to find an episode where we also, to be honest, don't know when it took place, but we do know it took place after this episode. And that is in, that is in source number four, but I, I did not bring enough of it, so I, I just want to bring a little bit earlier. This is when a, when Yitzchak calls Esav in to come and get the bracha, but I, I just want to see the way that he frames it. So Yitzchak is now, has become older, you know, even Yitzchak is going to live a long time from this point. Uh, the, I, the, way, the reason I know he's going to live a long time because Yaakov is going to be away for a long time and he's going to come back and still yet meet Yitzchak. So what, what this really means is not to say a lot of time has gone by. What is to say is that Yitzchak has become old. Yitzchak has become old. Ve'yikra et Esav b'noah gadol v'yoma elav b'ni v'yoma elav hineni. So he calls, summons Esav v'yomer hineno zakanti luyadati yomoti. I'm old, I don't know when I'm going to die. So I'm just throwing out the question right now. How often did Yitzhak speak this way? Was this only a function of now suddenly he feels older? Or has Yitzhak said this before? Because I'm, I am pointing out that we noticed this in Esav, and Esav's going to end up doing a lot of Yitzhak. And again, the way that we normally understand it is, yeah, Esav honored his parents, which of course is not really true. He doesn't honor his parents. He honors his father. Mother, absolutely not. So I, 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 do, I do want to illustrate this, but also show something else involved in it, which is going to help us again towards the understanding of a in terms of pshat. Again, that, that very much concerns me, I told you, as a starting point. If you look at source number two, See, he married a Jewish girl. Her name is Yehudit. Bat Be'eri Hachiti. Ah, you scrape a little bit and look back. She's really not. She's a Chiti, which, by the way, is not a good thing. Because, and we know that because when Avraham was looking for a wife for Yitzchak, he, there's this whole effort not to marry a, one of the local girls. And not only that, Ve'et Basmat Bat Elon Hachiti. So this is a bit unfortunate in terms of Esav's life's, life choices. The, the person who originally we saw was the one who married more than one person was Lemech. And Lemech gets attacked for this in terms of the Midrashim. And Lemech's behavior may very well have been what, has, what, what the Torah then tells us a little bit down the line in terms of the sins of the generation. They, took, they take Nashim, the Kolosh Baharu, that he's, why are you marrying multiple women? You know, if you go back to the very beginning description of uh, Adam and Chava, Alkein, Yazov, Ishet, Avivet, Imo, right? And it, it does not talk... And, and you'll cling to your wife. It doesn't say your wife and the other wife and the third wife. That's not what it says. There's actually a very romantic description given in the very beginning. And why is he getting multiple wives? So one of the things that Chazal say about Lemech is that ultimately he sees women in terms of utility, which is actually quite sexist if you think about it, because what a marriage is supposed to be, and I've said this many times, what a marriage is supposed to be is between two human beings. So there is really this meeting as a sense of, of two human beings. But over here... It's not, it, it, it's, 
he sees one wife in terms of beauty, another wife in terms of children. So therefore, what we have over here is uh, is utility. He sees he sees utility. Each woman is a partial woman, and each woman only has a particular skill or need that they has. So right away, you know, Asaph marries two women. You know what? If we want to be a little nicer, we can go back to Avraham, and there was infertility, and maybe that was the only kind of solution they had at that point. But there's a whole drama and narrative involved in this. Over here, there's no drama, there's no narrative. All that we're told is, okay, time to get married. But there's something which is more significant. And that is, and I don't want you to miss it, and that's why I bolded it, but Ye Esav ben Arba'im Shana, he was 40 years old. Now, why that? why is that significant? Because if you go back to source... Number one, what are we told? In Pasuk Kaf, the Yitzchak, the Yehi Yitzchak ben Arbaim Shana bekachto Rivka bat bat betuela armi padana rama chot lavana armi lo leisha. The Yitzchak gets married when he's forty, and and Esav gets married when he's forty. So therefore, if you're going to ask Esav, so what are you doing? Esav is doing. I'm I'm following the footsteps of my father. I, 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 more than that, I am a good son. I'm doing what my father did. Now, some of you can say, oh, yeah, look at that. He's just like his father, and, and uh, this, is, this is great. Of course, the, the reaction in Source 2 in Pasuk Lamed, hey, vatiena marodruach liyitzak And this caused incredible pain, you know, bitterness, marodruach, bitterness, for both Yitzchak and for Rivka. Why? So now, again, why? Because he marries these local girls. Maybe because he marries two of these local girls. Maybe even worse, because he thinks he's so wonderful because he did it. Look, I'm following my father's footsteps, which means that just made everything worse. But what, what I want you to note is this superficiality in Esav, which is actually quite tragic. Later on, we're going to find out after Yitzchak tells Yaakov to go back, you know, where you know to find somebody appropriate to marry. Essentially, what the tension is to marry somebody from the line of shame or from the line of Ham. So, and he sends him to go back. So, if you look towards uh, the end of source number four, but Toma Rivka El Yitzchak. So now hold it. You also have Rivka saying, you know, what kind of life is this? So you have a lot of drama, a lot of, you know, the, the way that all of them were speaking. It wasn't just Asaph, oh, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. No, I'm going to die. So everybody talking about death over here. But uh, look now at source number five. He realizes that his father doesn't like it. But actually, who else didn't like it? Rivka didn't like it. Esav doesn't seem to care. Esav fulfills the mitzvah in a certain way of kibbut av, but Esav does not really care about kibbut aim. Now, all of the amateur psychologists over here can say, well, of course that's the case, is that she already knew that he was going to be the unsuccessful child, and as she was nursing him, she did not hold him with the same love, and he felt it, and he, and, and he internalized this, and he felt rejected from the very beginning, and all of the love of Rivka went to Yaakov, and he knew it from the, from the very beginning. So, okay, and maybe you're right, and maybe you're wrong. I have absolutely no idea, but what I do know is that you, you can't miss this point unless you miss this point. And where it says that both of his parents find this difficult, Rivka articulates to Yitzchak. I don't know if there's an, another time that we have them speaking. Rivka speaks directly to Yitzchak. 
don't know if there's another time of them speaking. And and what she says over here, oh, this is this is so terrible. You know, th- this is going to put me in my grave. So you you have to love this. You know, how, how Jewish these people, how how Jewish these people were. He marries this non-Jewish girl. I'm going to die. Right? You're going to kill me. Right? And, and Asaph does not seem to care all that much. Rashi notes at least some of this. If you look at source number three, Rashi is quite harsh. And Rashi's from the Midrash, saying, oh, Asaph's 40 years old, time to get married, just like his father. Ben Avram Shana, Asaph Hayanim Shal Lechazir. Okay, now, that may have sounded a little uh, harsh to some of you. Asaph is like the pig. Shenemar, and he quotes a pasuk over here. Hachazir hazeh kishuch shochev. When the when the pig is is lying down, you can embellish rolling in mud. Poshet tlafav, it holds up its uh, hooves. Lomar ru'u, saying, take a look. Shani tahar, look, I'm, I've split hooves. I'm 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 pure. Such, are, such is the behavior of all kinds of people who are guilty of terrible crimes, but they like to show the veneer on the outside of how kosher or righteous they are. So over here, it's saying, oh, Asaph till this point for 40 years has been guilty of, again, we have this rape and pillage and, and abuse and, and so on. When he was 40 years old, Amar, he said, My father got married at 40. I'm going to do the same thing. So you realize that Rashi packed a lot more into it than what I said, but the observation is... is right, right. The observa- that's part of the hunting. The observation is correct. That Asaph does something on the veneer, which is very, which is very similar to what his father did. Although, as much as you want to say it's the same, if you dig a little bit deeper, it's completely different. And therefore, he's using this metaphor of the chazir. And by the way, the metaphor of the chazir for Asaph really is interesting, especially in light of some late midrashim that insists that somehow along the way that the pig will end up becoming kosher. Have you ever heard that before? You can you can look up. I, I wrote an article. It's in one of my books, but you can find it online. It was called "When Pigs Fly." You can uh, you, you you can you could find it. And, but 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 what's important about the article is that it's not really so much about that we have this belief that pigs are going to undergo an evolutionary process and start to chew their cut as well. Even though there are some who say that, but once you realize that pigs are a metaphor for Asav. What it's telling you is that one day Esav will chozer, chazir, will chozer, will come back. That the end of history is that Esav's going to end up coming back, and now you can decide what's more of a miracle, for a pig to to become kosher, or for Esav, again, guilty of all those things that we've said before, of the, the, you know, being Rome and the second Beit HaMikdash, and of the Crusades, and of the, and again, ultimately... In, in, in the Holocaust and saying no, but but the behavior over here will come back and and even though uh, some of us can have very very good reasons to be cynical of the evangelicals who say that they love us and so on, and I, I do think it's a concern. I mean, all the people who tell me no, we know theology and I also know theology. Okay, and unfortunately, it could be I know better than some of the ones who were telling me they know theology. And, but nonetheless, the, the tactic is a very interesting tactic. Instead of killing us to get rid of us, now they're going to, they love us to get rid of us. <laughs> you love us to death.
what what I'm hoping, what I'm hoping is that you know now after I point out like these other things about Esav and how he does speak sometimes a little bit like his father and he behaves again this veneer like his father. I, I, I want to say one more thing, and this is a little more difficult, although for us it could be very easy. In rabbinic sensibility, Yitzchak is considered to be midah hadin. Why? That's an excellent question. Find a source for it. That's even a better thing. Go, go find. But it does make a difference. That, that's the way we look at it. Avraham is chesed and Yitzchak is din. As I said, I'd love to see the first source that really says such a thing. It's not as easy as some of you may think that it is. But nonetheless, that's our sensibility. Esav ends up incorporating a certain type of din. And it's that where I want to proceed. Meaning, the individual who says that I'm going to do what my father did, and therefore the way he interprets it, I'm going to get married at 40. I mean, you you realize there's a certain amount of rigidity to his mindset. So I'm not really sure how to articulate all of this. You you know, in our lives, we have... uh, we have laws. Okay, we live in a country actually with laws. We um, we have customs. We have halacha. We have minhagim. We have etiquette. You know, for some people, by the way, etiquette is far more important than any of the other things that I said. And and again, I would claim that that is a function of a certain type of rigidity, a certain type of uh, sensibility or sensitivity that this is how things have to be done. And I think Esav has a lot of that. I remember one of my kids, I can't say which one, because he still has to find a shidduch. So, so uh, I remember when he was very young, and we would say, Yishai, use a fork. And he says, why? I'm not British. <laughs> three, three. I'm not British. What do I, what do I, why do I need a fork? I'm Israeli. I'm like, we eat with our hands. Like, what is, what, what, like, and looking at it, like, we're crazy. What are you talking about? What's the, what's the, and again, for some people, etiquette is very important. I don't remember every Friday night, if I happen to set the table, which goes on the right and which goes on the left, till Naomi says, if the knife is on the right side. And she says, it like, with a little bit of, uh, it's a little scary. When she when she says the knife is on the right side, okay. Actually, was but uh, yeah, but back in the who remembers? But now, when she said the knife is in the right hand, so she scared me, and now and now I know. But just in terms of the sense of etiquette itself, so uh, who who would know? But what I'm getting at is Asav's superficiality. Nobody be insulted by that is actually wonderful for all kinds of ways that you lead your life because it, out of the chaos of life, it gives you some very... It gives you clarity. And it gives you this is, how you, this is what you do and how you do it, which actually, therefore, should point towards a potential skill that Asaph should have. Now, to understand what I'm saying now, I, I, I want to point out a chazal, and I am guilty of having too many sources... But I, I do want to say one thing about Ace of doing tshuva first, and, and then we're going to come back and see some of the uh, other things. There is a one of the midrashim that talk about Ace of, which also picks up something interesting. It said, "What is it that Ace of did in terms of kibar ve'emo that side befiv? You go to his father and says, "Do I take meiser from the salt? Or do I take meiser from the tevin? 
Why of all things, of all mitzvot, did he identify as meiser? Because that's the mitzvah that Yitzchak did. So if you say, hold it, where did Yitzchak do it? So l- l- let's just take a look. Look at, look at source number six, which is the Tzedel Aderech. He quotes this thing, Yodei Tzayid, Abba Heichma Asrin Etamelech. How do you take meiser from salt and so on. So he asks along the way, you know, why dafka, why specifically this? And again, he quotes exactly what the source is, which is less concerned to me. Where it's bold, two-thirds down. Why this mitzvah? You know, why not shilua haken? Why not? Meaning, if you're already going to say, I'm a, I'm a tzaddik, why this particular mitzvah? V'nira li litain tam l'shevach v'hu al-dach shapirish rasha l'kaman v'yesav ben abim shana v'yikach isha v'yesav yanim shalachazir And he goes and he quotes the Rashi that we just now saw, which really goes back to this superficiality of Esav. I'm skipping a line. V'yish yitzchak haya rishon sheikh zik b'mitzvot ma'aser so when it says that he found Me'asharim, Rashi, what, what do you mean he found? Which means a hundred times as much grow, grew, but why was he concerned about the number is because he was separating Ma'aser. The, the, Ramba, the Rambam says in Source 7, Al Shishad Dvarim Nitztava Adam Arishon, and we're skipping now a little bit. Ba Avraham v'nitzdava yeter al elu b'mila. Avraham got another mitzvah. V'hu it palel shacharit. He's commanded for brit mila, but he did, but he prayed shacharit. The Yitzchak hifrish ma'aser v'osif tefilat acheret l'fnotayam. And Yitzchak was the one who introduced the mitzvah of ma'aser. So once you understand that Yitzchak is doing ma'aser specifically, that's his mitzvah. So of course, Esav. Again, you can now decide. You know, is this sincere? Is it not sincere? But Chazal understand he's not sincere. But why specifically do you take Ma'aser from something? Because that's what his father does. So therefore, again, there is, again, on a Midrashic level, this type of connection between Esav and Yitzchak and trying to be like Yitzchak, even though we realize that, the, again, Chazal are reading some cynicism into this. I don't, I don't think there's mocking over here. I think, no, 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 not at all. No, there's not, there's not mocking taking place over here. He's trying to show how outwardly religious he is. Look, even on salt, I'm going to do it. That's, that, that's the way that Chazal under, understand this. In source number eight, in source number eight, the Baliatos vote, again, also have a commentary on the Chumash. The Yitin Lachalokim has to do with the blessing received, Zemidat Hadin. That Tosot reads a subtext into the relationship between Yitzchak and Yaakov versus Esav, and it's very concerning what he said. He says that Esav's... Yaakov would have done mitzvot, and if, uh, if in this world he doesn't see the reward, he's not going to reject that, that, that he did the mitzvah. He goes, but Esav's not like that. Esav can't take that kind of treatment. Esav needs to see the, the payback. 
Otherwise, otherwise, he's, it's not going to work. Now, what Tosfot is actually doing, and I'll say if I'm not mistaken, but I'm not mistaken, so I'll say this is what he's actually doing, is he's telling a Gemara, which is in a couple of places. If you look at source number nine, it says, Vahatanya, we learned in a Braita, and I, I, I chose this from Rosh Hashanah because those who learned Afyomi just learned Rosh Hashanah. We could have also gotten it from Baba Batra. Vahatanya, Omer, Selazu Lutztaka, Bishvil Shichu Bani. Banai or, ben, or Bani. If somebody says, I'm going to give Tztaka, I'm going to make a Mishaberach, right, so that my, my son is going to be healthy, Ubishvil Shizkebel Chailumaba, or going to do a mitzvah so I can have shame in the world to come, Harezit Tzadik Gomor. That person's a Tzadik. The Gomor, and again, we walked in the Gomor in the middle, Loka Shakan Bisrokan Begoyim, or another version says Benachrim. What, what, what just now happened? The Gemara understands that when it comes to the way that non-Jews, now if you want, you could say pagans, but the way that non-Jews or pagans will worship their deity will be, I'll give you something, but I want something back. <laughs> if I'm not going to something back, then why'd I bother pay you off? By the way, especially when you have a whole you know, industry of different kinds of uh, gods. So I'm only giving you something because I want something back from you. If not, i got someone else that I can pay. I mean, I, th- th- this, there needs to be quid pro quo, otherwise I wasted my time. So it says that there's a difference in orientation between a Jew does a mitzvah versus when a non-Jew does something even though it looks good. So he says that, you know, if God forbid the person gives tzedakah and then the child dies, you know, the, the Jew says, okay, at least I did tzedakah, I did what I can do. But it's accusing the non-Jew would say, well, why did I bother even... And that's what Tosfa just now said about Esav, which is actually saying that Esav has this pagan, men, the pagan mentality. When he wakes up from his dream, he does say that. Now the question is, now what if God didn't do it for him? Will he then say, okay, chaval that I did it? That's what the Gemara says, that he wouldn't do that. Again, you, whether he would or he wouldn't, I can't tell you. I'm saying that's what, the, that's what the Gemara says over here. The reason why this is interesting is because there's another Gemara which actually says that the status of Esav is really of Yisrael Mumar. That he's a, he's a sinful Jew. Not that he's a non-Jew. He's a sinful Jew. And, and, that, and, and that, I think, also creates a very interesting subtext, especially in this concept of Chazir. He's coming back or he's not coming back. The whole idea that he's coming back is because he's still a son of Yitzchak. He's a son of Rivka. He's a brother of Yaakov. And there is, you know, it's very hard to say he's not Jewish and say Yaakov is Jewish when they're, when they're twins. And uh, it's saying, no, that, that, that's why this idea of the Chazir. So that's what I'm saying. There's a tension over here of how do we look at Esav? Do we look at Esav as being a non-Jew? you look at Esav as being a Jew? So here the Baal Yatosot is saying, oh, look at Esav, he's really a non-Jew, he's really a pagan, that's really who he is. While on the other hand, you have the way that, uh, the way that another Gemara says, as I said very clearly, no, that, that Esav is a Yisrael Mumar. Okay, if you look at the Baal Turim, in source number 11, the Baal Turim says... When Esav is born, he's called an Admoni, and he points out that the word Admoni is mentioned twice in Tanakh. Admoni Shnayim B'Mesoret. So let's just go down and see where the other one is. It's the birth of David HaMelech. And this is the whole thing where Shmuel is looking for who's going to be the individual who's going to be chosen as leader. That he is an Admoni Yefeinayim. So the Midrash over here, which is in source 13, says, Rishon Admoni. I'm a Rabbi Chagai, Rabbi Yitzchak. I always find it interesting the Rabbi Yitzchak's 
in the Midrash who then talk about Yitzchak or talk about Esau and talk about the narrative. And the name is significant. And we're going to skip the first part, but it says, Which is just a, a very strange thing, that Esau comes out first, and the first one's going to build the Beit HaMikdash, and we have absolutely no idea what this Midrash is talking about. At face value, where do we get to Mashiach? Where do we get to the Rish? And the reason is it's talking about something else. The first Beit HaMikdash and Mashiach, it's all talking about somebody else, and that's David. Now, what did, how did David get into this? Well, now you already know how David got in. Admoni amarabi damim. That when Esau comes out, he's all full of red, and therefore the image that comes out is somebody who's going to spill blood. That means that there is some kind of a connection that Shmuel originally was afraid of. And by the way, this is all superficial. Just because somebody may be a redhead doesn't necessarily tell you something about the the redhead, right, David? Right. So what 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 what, it, what, what it's saying over here is that Shmuel looks at him and, and he's just frightened by the way that David looks and says, "Hold it, this person is like Esav." And Amr lo Kadish Baruch but by David Melch there's something else. Im yifei inayim that he has beautiful eyes. Esav midat atzmo hu horeg. Esav kills by himself. He kills with when it's according to the law, when it's according to the rules, when it's according to the Sanhedrin. And this is, again, interesting in terms of the metaphor of the eyes of the nation or the leaders of the nation is the, is, is the Sanhedrin or the judges and so on. So therefore, the difference between David and Esav is that both of them have this capacity to spill blood and they both do spill blood. But one of them, we're told, does it in a way which is lafi hadin, midat hadin, and the other one doesn't do it lafi midat hadin. And I'm using midat hadin in a different way than sometimes is used. Because as I said before, Yitzchak is midat hadin. Esav gets the veneer from his father, but there's a difference in the way that it's manifest. And therefore, Esav is going to do things very, very exactly. They need to be done in the right way, but his, the problem is what is his sense of what the right way is. Esav, as much as he tries to do things right, ends up doing things which are terribly wrong, which is exactly part of the problem. But when it comes to David, who on, again, the veneer, the outside, somehow looks, reminds us of Esav, but there's very different. That, 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 that David is doing things, but he's actually doing things which are according to the law and not doing things in some kind of... Uh, Except for husband. Exactly. That was really a mistake. <laughs> which is why, which is why, when David sins, if you'll take a look, just one second, when David has that particular sin, namely with Bathsheba's husband, and here he kills or he causes somebody to die in a way which is not allowed, that's the reason why he suddenly becomes so susceptible and that's why he'll end up getting all the punishment that he gets. If you want, we can find somebody who actually says that black and white. If you look at source 23, the Iyun Yaakov, that's of Yaakov Reisher, wrote Shilot and Shuvot the Shvot Yaakov. The Ef Shardat the Itb and Drash for Yishlach for Yevei Vuhu Admoni Kaven Shur Ashmul Shuhu Admoni Nitiareh Amazesho Vichdom and Keesav Amalei Kadosh Baruch Hu. Esav midat atzmo harag, avolzeh midat sanhedrin hu horeg adkan, ve'im kein hachika amar, David zot haitali edut ki 
פיקודייך ניצרתי שלא הרגתי אל מידת סנהדון, אם לא כן לא נמשכתי למלכות כמו שאמר שמואל. And therefore, specifically, when it comes to the sin, in terms of uh, him not following the law, is when David becomes particularly susceptible to this. So I, I just want to follow through all of this in one more path, and then we'll, uh, and then, and then we'll stop for today. W- when it comes to the origins of David and, and who David is, and again, David is this person who, on the one hand, is, uh, is, li- is ace of like, but on the other hand, there needs to be Lafit, Hadin, not just Midar Hadin, the Fi Hadin. So there is a very famous Midrash that we're going to utilize, and maybe in a way which is slightly uh, unexpected. The Midrash is going to be ba- it's based on Source 15, which is a Pasuk in Tehillim. Matzati David Avdi. I found David my servant. And then it goes on to say, with holy oil, he becomes anointed. B'shemen kodshi meshechtiv. In source 16, Bereshit Rabbah, it says towards the end, Omer Rabbi Yitzchak, notice again, it's Rabbi Yitzchak, Matzati David Avdi, heichon matzativ, where did I find David? B'stom. I found him in stone. Now, my uh, sense would have been to say that David is connected to the previous line, that David comes from Rut, and therefore David comes from Rut, so therefore Rut goes all the way back to Lod, and therefore we're, I found David, and that's, I had to go looking where David is from. But it's interesting that the second opinion, no, we're not talking about Rut, I'm talking about in stone, which means the, what happened by Rut is right after they left stone, so this seems to be, no, Matzati David Avdi, where did I find him? In, in stone. So what does David have to do with, uh, with stone? So one of the things that we're told, and again, in the, in the narrative there, is that we're told that Lot was sitting by Shire Ha'ir. The second thing he is accused of, you know, who are you that you came over here to judge us, L'shpot, to judge us? Source 19, Velot Yoshev, Yoshav Ketiv. Source 19, Oto Ayam Minu Arche Dayanim. They made him judge that day. So the Arve Nachel in source number 20 is going to tell us that the city of Stom is supposed to be destroyed. That's it. It's going to be destroyed. Destroyed. The Stom is supposed to be destroyed. But on that day, Lot is appointed judge. So it's very interesting because all of us would have said why is Lot destroyed? And this is based on Pesukim, they're destroyed because of their lack of kindness, the lack of chesed, the lack of love. I mean, people come in, they, they don't treat them properly. So this is very interesting that it's actually saying over here, no, that day he was appointed judge, and this was the, their last chance. Because you have a corrupt system, you have a corrupt society, and your only chance of saving the society is changing the legal system, and then implementing the legal system. Which means, again, if you go back throughout history, the problem that we've had with Esav has not been because they're not law-abiding citizens. It's rather that the laws which they abide by are to our disadvantage and, to, and, and very often to our deaths. Which means that the, the problem of the corrupt society is the lack of, of, of proper din. So it, it's very interesting because it's really creating this contrast between David and Esav, and David is only David as long as he follows the line. The law has to be followed. 
which means, David, if you act Esav-like and you go hunting after a married woman, like Esav was accused of doing, it's at that point we have no need for you anymore. No, it's quite the opposite. You need to do what you do based upon law. Which, Therefore, th- this whole thing becomes much more interesting. The things that Esav's accused of and the things that David is accused of, no, there's a difference here. David follows law except for the unfortunate time that he doesn't. But the, but the difference is going to be that David doesn't change the law. David doesn't then come and say, well, that's, no, I don't like that law. We should be allowed to do something else. Which means that even when David fails, he ends up admitting, okay, I failed. I did wrong. I didn't did not follow the law. How many kings in history? The law is not convenient. Let's just follow, let's just change the law. Let's let's just yeah. I want to be law abiding, so let's change the law. That's that's the that's the easiest solution. So that's very interesting because the, where does David come from? The origin of David is in stone. So now, how can load save stone? But by, by being appointed a judge. But being appointed a judge is not enough. Now you have to change the whole system. Which means if you can achieve that, you can change the system, now you can save society. Now you can be Mashiach. Now you can be so much more. Which all of this is really somewhat frightening because then it does really speak to the power of Esav. Esav has this kind of power because, he again, there's this might, there's this leadership, there's this ability of forcing his will. But he does it all in a superficial way. And therefore, the comparison with David almost says to us what an Esav could have been. An Esav could have been like a person like that, but instead of changing the laws, sorry, instead of obeying the laws and keeping the laws, you instead have somebody who's going to then just change the laws and therefore is going to utilize the laws in the way that is convenient for them. So, so therefore, you know, as surprising as some of this may be, because I know somebody's hold it, where do we get to load and how do we get to David and what, where are we over here with, with Esav? It is... Asaph's following the veneer of law. Oh, my father got married at 40, got married at 40. He's imitating things that his father, but he picks up all the wrong things. That's, that, that's exactly the problem. He picks up the wrong things and he does it in the wrong way. And there is not this sense of the divine and there is not this sense of what is right and there's not this sense of I, I have to do better, which even when David sins, David then says, Chatati Lashem. Okay, there is the divine in this. I did make a mistake. I can't do this. But again, just like David, when Shmuel looks at him, wow, this looks like Esav, and David, yes, crosses the line to Esav kind of behavior, he does it with this admission which follows, yes, I messed up. I did something wrong. And one never gets the sense that Esav ever gets there. One never gets the sense that Esav, because even when he then realizes that his father, not his mother, doesn't like this, these girls that he married, he doesn't get rid of those girls. All that he does is he gets a third wife. The person who sees women as utility, okay, so I need a wife that can host when my father comes to visit. So I need another wife. And, and it's, again, it's the same sexism. It's the same looking at people in terms of utility. It's the same superficiality. And it's this idea that we never really get to this healing that takes place. But Chazal are very optimistic. By comparing him to the Chazir, they're very optimistic. Because even though they say that he's Chazir Treif right now, but they have this optimism that he is Yisrael Mumar, he is a sinful Jew, he's a Jew who's been superficial, but the end of history will be that, that, that Esav's going to come back home and the, and the Chazir is going to evolve and it's going to become kosher, and somehow Esav is somehow going to figure out the, the depth instead of simply the superficiality and perhaps develop the, the beautiful eyes of a David Amelech, which all sounds like this incredible leap of faith. But as, as I said today from the beginning, I was interested in looking at Esav in terms of what the Pesukim actually say, and then say, where does this go in terms of a Chazal, instead of just heaping upon him every single evil thing imaginable, which I'm sure would have made a lot of you a lot happier.